This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello there, and welcome to another Coronavirus Lockdown Survival Talking Flutes podcast with me, Jean-Paul Wright. The intro music is, as usual, Bessame Mucho, played by the wonderful Giovanni Perez. As I've been mentioning during the past few weeks, I've really wanted to use this time of social isolation and being holed up in my house just outside of London to catch up with some of the wonderful flutists who are always far too busy flying around the world performing to speak to little old me. This week, I have a very special treat for you. Born in South Korea, at the age of 16, she came to the United States to study with the renowned flutists Julius Baker and Jeffrey Kaner, amongst others. Selected as one of the 10 best flutists in their history of music by Symphony Magazine in the UK, along with legends of the world such as Marcel Moise, Jean-Pierre Rampal, Julius Baker, James Gouet, Emmanuel Pahoud, this wonderful flute player previously held the position of principal flute of the Vienna Symphony Orchestra before dedicating her performing life to becoming a full-time soloist flying around the world. Ever approachable, enigmatic, and with a beautiful and brilliant charismatic performing style, ladies and gentlemen, I welcome Jasmine Choi. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, John Paul. Thank you so much for having me. You made me cringe. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's my pleasure. You're very good. You're very good keeping quiet there. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my pleasure. Now, tell me what it's like to be in lockdown and not flying around the world, which is your usual life. <laughs> um, it's been um, actually very relaxing. I live in a small town called Bregenz, Austria. <laughs> um, for me, uh, apart from having so many concert cancellations, just being at home itself wasn't has not been so much difference uh, because between tours when I'm home, I'm normally just home, not having to go out in the morning and um, I don't have nine to five job at home. Um, so it's been quite quite normal except for no concerts <laughs> <laughs> now you're not get, you're not getting on as many trains and planes and cars and you're not having to live out of hotels so it's rather a weird question are you practicing more actually i feel like i don't practice less or more because as i said um it's not so much of a difference so when i'm home i think I practice a um, certain amount because, you know, when I'm home, the whole day is mine. So I think I am more used to organize my time for practicing certain time and then um, do other things 
doing emails and spending time with my husband. And it's very simple. I would say life gets very simple. Um, and also a lot of housework, I would say, <laughs> cleaning, <laughs> doing laundry and so on. Well, that's yeah. the key, as you say, as with a life like you lead, being disciplined and being organized is the only way you can be. Probably, yeah. So um, I think that's why um, I, I don't feel like it's drastically different uh, or um, I, I get many questions from students that all day, all of a sudden they're home and how shall I get motivated because it's so different than going to school all the time or rehearsals and they have to do something by the schedule. But I think it's uh, probably a good good chance for all the young flutists to to learn how to organize your day once you get used to it you feel more freedom i think i would totally agree because once you <laughs> yeah once you have done what you intended to do then you almost as you say you have more freedom to go and choose to do things outside of the flute playing mm-hmm. which yeah. is which is really important for us as human beings isn't it <laughs> yes, yes. So I, I spend time um, doing yoga outside in the garden or yesterday for the first time after 15 days at home, I went outside um, with my bike. It felt so good having some fresh air and um, blue sky. The weather was so good. So, so beautiful. Are the muscles aching? Oh, no. <laughs> No, it was just uh, like 10 minutes of bike and ah. then um, just hanging out and then uh, in, enjoying the weather and then coming back another 10 minute ride and I wasn't even being fast. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but then, you know, um, whatever I do, I don't feel pushed or I feel like I should have been practicing right now or when I'm practicing thinking about, about, Oh, I should do something else. So the thing is when I'm uh, riding a bike, like yesterday, I I only think about that and I don't feel pushed by, um, I should do something else like practicing and um, something more productive. I don't know. (laughs) So I, I, very relaxing (laughs) so you very much live in the present moment don't you so if you're cycling you're thinking about cycling and what you're seeing around you rather than worrying about practice or impending performances you're very much now i think so i think so although certain concerts or pieces needs more time more hours and that gives me pressure sometimes that you know after working on that piece a few hours a day and then I feel like oh I don't I don't feel like I'm I'm nearly nearly done and the time is running out and yeah that kind of pressure of course I have that too (laughs) (laughs) we all know this (laughs) we do but what is the measurable that you have if you're if you're playing a really complex piece How would you measure if you're really pleased with the work that you've done? Or are you that person that does it and is never really satisfied? I'm not sure um, the satisfaction level, how to put it, but it depends on every piece that 
some pieces require a lot of hours just to even learn the notes. Yes. And that's just a matter of time, a lot of hours. And some pieces are coming across very difficult with the musical level. And that bothers me to a totally different direction as well. Um, so I, I would say these um, these are different kinds of obstacles that we, we all know um, as a flutist, as a musician. But in terms of satisfaction, I think it's easier to tell if you learned all the notes, what's there. Then you can tell if it's there or not. But then the musical level, I would say it's, it's hard to tell if this is um, the best I can do or could be a little different way or yeah, a little more depth. And to this direction, I think there is no end. <laughs> and there, there's never any end when, you, when you're looking <laughs> at that area. So, Jasmine, can I take you back? Can I take you back to growing up and being a child prodigy in Korea? <laughs> prodigy. I mean, what, <laughs> what was it like and how did you cope with all the pressure? Um, pressure. Because we I'm all, trying, we I'm all trying see, to think if I, ha, if I had a pressure. <laughs> well, we all, we all see South Korean musicians and they seem mm-hmm. very dedicated to their totally. arts. Um, So surely the dedication leads to uh, a pressure of sorts, but there's lots of South Korean flute players, really, really good ones. And it's really hard to sort of differentiate that special one that is like yourself that grew up and and at a very young age then disappeared away. But I I do understand your question about um, pressure in Korea, because whenever I go teach in Korea, it's, oh, I, I feel it. <laughs> um, and what I noticed, is, uh, especially after studying and spending many years outside of Korea, is that when uh, it wasn't so, it was not like that when I was growing up. But nowadays, when I see them, the parents and the students, when they pick up the flute, they pick it up to become a flutist, um, professional flutist. And they ask me a, a lot that, do you think my child has a chance to become a professional flutist? If not, we're going to quit. You know, but in my time, <laughs> I feel so old. <laughs> Picking up an instrument, it was more like a hobby first. Um, there were there were a lot of hobby instrumentalists growing up and then um, if you find it more interesting then you would go further and then slowly practice more and then uh, indulge into music um, little by little but then I think it's more and more these days that parents tend to decide the child's future from the very very early age that uh, you pick the instrument for the child and then only uh, make them do that. <laughs> Nothing else, not so much else. I've seen many students not going to school, for example, or even in the music school that I went to, uh, the music middle school, 
they have told me that nowadays you only have to play the instrument to get in. In my days, <laughs> we had to do all the other tests. So you ha we had to study so much as well, <laughs> like all the other kids who doesn't do any music. So I think I should just speak for my, my own childhood. I was growing up in a very musical family. My mom was a violinist and all her side family was a classical trained musician. My grandfather, my mom's dad, was the first generation of classical musician in Korea. He, he learned a lot of different instruments, um, piano, violin, clarinet, saxophone, cello, I think. And then later he went on to become a conductor and he founded one of the very prominent orchestras in South Korea called Chongju Philharmonic. And he had been the music director there for 17 years. So I used to go to his concerts with mom and I used to go to my uncle's concerts, um, cello recital, or my aunt playing piano, or my aunts and uncles and cousin-in-law gathered together for holidays, and we used to play some easy tunes like a chamber music. So music was, for me, uh, a very natural thing, thing that even uh, when I was growing up, it was funny that I thought everybody was a musician. <laughs> um, my, my dad also played a few instruments for fun, and my brother was playing cello. And, and so I thought, okay, um, I'll become, uh, I don't know, some, someone, something else, but musician. <laughs> Music is, is like a hobby, like a hobby that everyone plays. Um, so it was like that with piano and the violin. I I was playing it as a hobby, never practiced, only went to lessons. I think I enjoyed more playing outside with uh, with boys, <laughs> uh, riding bicycles and roller skates, yeah, all that. And then um, when I picked up the recorder in the third grade in the school, what that's like what everyone does. Uh, I, I've found out all over the world in Korea, not only in Korea, in the US and in Austria as well, uh, Germany as well. And back then, third grade in school, I think for most of the students, it was probably their first instrument there they ever played. But for me, it was already my third instrument after piano and the violin. And then it came to me so easy, and this easiness uh, was something that I've never experienced before with the piano or the violin. It was always <laughs> something very confusing, especially when you never practice, you know. And and then recorder playing this easy um, children's tune. It was something like da 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 and uh, you only required to learn a few notes <laughs> and then and then I thought wow this is fun I've never 
never knew playing an instrument could be so much fun. So that's how I got started, that I, I wanted to play something, some kind of wind instrument. And I was very lucky to have this neighbor upstairs who used to play the flute all the time. She was about three years older than me. And to my ears, flute sounded so beautiful. And the flute had so many notes than the recorder. (laughs) I've only known one octave scale, one scale, one C major scale (laughs) on the recorder. And I wanted to play more notes. So that's how it all started. (laughs) And you then decided... Did you decide that you wanted to clear off and go to the US or was it just the mm-hmm. opportunities yeah. open? Yeah, I was the I was the one who decided to go to first of all to this uh, smaller city called Tianjin and then to Seoul by myself. I was 12 years old. Wow. I wanted to I wanted to go to this music school in Seoul and of course my my parents didn't like the idea. They were strongly against it. And then I asked them, oh, can I just go and audition and then I'll stay home? And then, of course, when you get in, you really want to go. So I had to beg them day and night, every day. And then off I went. They they respected my dream and they let me go. So from this moment on, I think my path has been significantly different than a lot of other Korean education styles because they were a lot of times they were forced to do something and I remember in this middle school in Seoul first of all I had low self-confidence I would say because um, thinking all these kids from Seoul, this big city Seoul, when they go home, they have their parents and the parents tell them to practice. You know, I was a little jealous about that because my parents never did that. When Even when I called them to say, oh, I miss home and I didn't know it was so hard and so lonely. And every time my parents said right away, yeah, we told you, please come home right away tomorrow. (laughs) Don't practice too hard and things like that. So I think it made a difference when I think back that uh, it was always the, the one, the instrument that I wanted to play. I had to beg my parents to start the flute and I had to convince my parents to go to Seoul all by myself. And then, and then I stopped complaining because I didn't want to go home. I, even if I really missed my family, I was contemplating about first few months. Is it really worth it to live here apart from my family? It was about two hours difference by the car. Uh, when I think of it now, it's it's a neighborhood. But from that age, for 12-year-old, it was a world away. And I thought, shall I keep staying here uh, or shall I listen to my parents and, and just go back to Dejan and, and go to the normal middle school? And then at one point I thought, well, I really love music. I want to learn more. So let's just stay. And then after that, I was not debating anymore. <laughs> and yeah. And what oh. ma- and what made you move to the US? That's a big right. that's, that is a big transformation um, at sixteen. And then, right. So after about three years, I moved on to the music high school, 
which I looked forward to. I thought um, I could learn more in this music high school, but then I felt like it was a different building of school. It's, it's different location, but all my all my friends were the same, which was great. But all the systems were all also the same, meaning that we had to learn all the same pieces all together and go through the midterms, finals, and um, semester concerts or same competitions or, you know, whatever we do, it was more or less the same pieces we were playing. And I thought, well, I thought the, the world will open up to for me to learn more, but it was the same system. And I thought, well, I am learning indeed an instrument from not from Korea, so I should go either Europe or to the States. And of course, my parents said, no way, <laughs> <laughs> no freaking way. <laughs> and then I think it took me a little more than a year to <laughs> convince them, <laughs> talking to them again and again. And then... Um, they found out <laughs> that I have a very far cousin um, <laughs> that I've never met who, <laughs> who live near, near New York. And, and um, off I went. The funny thing is that a lot of students, I, I think almost everybody, they, they, audition to the schools first and then if they get in then they move according to which school they yes. are in but in my case i just went i just quit school and i i just went to the states because yeah i thought you know we'll see what happened um in the states and i have somebody who can be my guardian and then of course i felt like i was trapped in a even smaller world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then that was when I found out about the Curtis Institute of Music that you could still audition um, before graduating high school. So um, I worked very hard for <laughs> for this audition and I was very lucky to get in uh, for this one opening. So it was like a redemption. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you went from Curtis onto Juilliard and mm -hmm. to study with the wonderful guy that was Julius Baker. Right. Actually, Mr. Baker, he passed away after I studied with him for four years. And then uh, at the same time, Mr. Kaner, Jeffrey Kaner, mm. was also at Curtis. So we were very lucky that we were four flute students all together in the whole school and two flute teachers. So we get to study with both of them. Oh, with both of them. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went on to Juilliard to study further with uh, Mr. Kaner. And by the time um, Mr. Baker was already passed away yeah. so what did they unlock in your flute playing bearing in mind you'd come from korea and, right, as, and um, as you say you'd you'd learnt exactly what everybody else was learning in the same way and you were desperate to obviously bring more into your musicianship and your playing so what did they unlock um obviously i had a lot of expectations and i i was coming from this totally different learning culture uh, which was that 
the students were obliged to say yes and follow whatever the teacher was saying. And I was so ready to study so much and learn so much, whatever um, both of them were saying. And Mr. Baker, by contrary, it was a big shock for me because he gave me so much freedom that I've never had before. He was giving me opportunity to seek for my own voice. And I was very confused in the first year, hoping that uh, he would just give me the answer um, to my question. <laughs> um, and then I was so ready to follow whatever he says. And I would ask him so many different options that Mr. Baker, shall I do this way or this way? You know, five different interpretations. And he would say, well, if I answer for you, then it's my music. <laughs> Did you know he sounds like a Buddhist monk, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it took me a few years to really understand and really appreciate. Wow. Yeah, and that's why all four of us at Curtis, we sounded all very different. You know, normally mm. when you see certain teacher, their students sounded um, yep. sound pretty much similar, same way of phrasing, same of same way of style, and so on. But we were very individual, uh, very different, and um, totally different colors and interpretations. But I was sixteen, and he was eighty, yeah. and he he would say. Well, I'm five times older than you. And then he said, oh, damn, it's true. <laughs> you know, things like that. <laughs> and um, I'm telling you that the school time is only temporary. Uh, we meet only once, once a week, only for one hour. But the rest of the week, rest of the time, you have to be your own teacher. And then after school, it's better for you that you're used to teach yourself and listen for your own playing and find your own color. So for me, it was like, wow. In the beginning, I couldn't understand what he was trying to say. <laughs> because, yeah, in, in Korea, it was totally the opposite way. But then really, over the years, as I was getting used to it more and more, I really felt like he gave me the wings to fly and to find my own voice and so on. And on the contrary, Mr. Kainer uh, was very, very strict. Um, <laughs> so it was a very good balance for us. Well, at least for me, um, I should only speak for myself. <laughs> it was a very good balance for me. And he was somehow intimidating. I can't, I don't know why. <laughs> I couldn't really tell back then either. Um, he was not even yelling at me or scolding or anything, but his presence was very intimidating. So that made me really go home and practice a lot. <laughs> <laughs> did, you have the, did you have the same freedom, the same vocal freedom with Mr. Kainer as you did with Julius Baker? Um, I would say yes, because uh, Mr. Kainer also studied with Mr. Baker and, 
and he knows exactly what um, Mr. Baker would tell us. So he didn't interfere about the interpretation so much unless it's really something very obnoxious and just <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so he would correct all that. But then even, even so, uh, I felt like I had a chance that I can express what I feel like to express. So it was, it was very, very great combination. <laughs> oh, and when did you really feel you found your true voice? Your true flute voice. Was it studying with Julius Baker or was it after? When was it that you you found the Jasmine Choi that is the flute <laughs> I, I think I would say around third year at Curtis. Right. I, yeah, I felt like, wow, this music making is so much fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then they, they really let me carry that. Because, yeah. I mean, not only are you an extremely technical flute player, is this you have a, vo- a voice, a flute voice to die for. And um, <laughs> I suppose you. that really did, that was unlocked by your studies at Curtis and at Juilliard when, you're al- as you say, you're allowed to fly. And that meant sort of exploring the tonal boundaries and the color boundaries. Probably, I mean, it nothing happened overnight. Um, I wish but, it did with flute but, players. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I think it, it, everything it gradually gradually happened over the years. Curtis and then Juilliard, even when I had the same teacher, but the whole environment was very different from Philadelphia to New York. Mm. And the style of the school, Juilliard itself, was very different from um, Curtis' style because you also learn a lot from your colleagues, not only your flutist colleagues, but also the people you play chamber music with and your coaches, chamber coaches, and all the concerts and student recitals you attend and outside of um, school context as well. New York style was a little more vibrant, I would say, more, um, no, more modern. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I felt. (laughs) Um, Because Curtis was a very, very conventional and traditional style, and they really value that. And then New York was... Uh, in Juilliard, there were also had a, a lot of effect from the the city itself. There are a lot of other genres of music going on, like a lot of jazz scene and Broadway scene that influenced me as well. And then also when I went on to Cincinnati Symphony, that was whole not another uh, atmosphere. So I absorbed a lot from. Pablo Yarvi, back then music mm. director, and also uh, in Cincinnati Symphony, the same members of the musicians we had to play Cincinnati Pops. Yes. Um, people would think it's two different orchestra, but it's exactly the same orchestra. And with this Pops concerts, uh, when they were exploring a lot of different genres, it also opened me up as well in my thinking and in my musical style and, and everything. So, yeah, everything influenced me in my, in my playing, I think. I mean, you're extremely passionate about chamber music, aren't you? Mm-hmm, yeah. Is that, is that because the nuances of playing delicately with an, a small, intimate group of musicians? 
Um, there are many reasons. I mean, I really value every kind of um, uh, forms of concerts, music making in solo or piano and flute or chamber music, orchestra, it's all very different. And then it's all the same in the very big circle. And chamber music, for example, it's very fascinating that you can have different minds, different interpretations. For example, when you play with the pianist, it's you and the pianist, and it's two-way, uh, how, how do you say, two two people talking. Yeah. So just like you and me, we play, we, we talk back and forth. Um, and then when there are three or four people, it gets um, different, but somewhat more interesting in this way that Sometimes uh, we think alike, we feel the same, sometimes we don't. But then uh, you learn how to be more open to the other ideas. And you have to first try because it might be a much better idea (laughs) or not. (laughs) And then uh, when you find the same pulse with all the other musicians, the satisfaction is, yeah, it's incredible so jasmine you alone you probably won't notice it because you are you but what are the (laughs) pressures what are the pressures of being an internationally famous and recognizable (laughs) flutist and especially especially when you go back to korea (laughs) (laughs) um i think i feel the most when i've when I'm in the flute conventions, <laughs> like, yes. every step there are flute flutists. <laughs> yes. But um, that's not every day. So I think I would say I get to be myself all the time, um, most of the time. And even in the conventions, I'm not trying to be someone else. Um, it's hard. I, for you, it's hard for you to walk around a convention. I mean, it's uh, yeah, you, you, walk, yeah, you walk into the halls and you, you, there's all these flute players come after you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, which is very nice. It's just very um, only before my recital, you know, that I just want to walk straight to the green room. It's okay. I only know how to be myself. <laughs> Do you know that is such a wonderful thing to thing to say? Is that you are the same person on the stage as you are off the stage? Obviously, you're in the zone. And you are in free freedom with the orchestra or the pianist or whatever you are doing, but you're still Jasmine Choi. You're not an alter ego that is just performing for the sake of it with one face. I, I think um, now that you mentioned on stage, I, I think only on stage I'm different probably because I am so into the music I'm playing. So, and, and the music is always different. Sometimes I'm playing Mozart, sometimes I'm playing something flashy pieces, or sometimes I'm playing Telemann or Bach. So whatever composer I'm playing, I'm so into that. So a lot of times I feel like whenever I am holding the flute, not even playing the flute, whenever I'm holding the flute, I could be someone else. Uh, I could it's like chameleon. It depends on uh, which music is in my head. And I have to come out of my own self. Things like when I have to scream away on stage 
like playing the Zoom tube by Ian Clark. <laughs> That's really not me, the screaming crazy woman. Maybe that is, but I haven't known yet. <laughs> but when I was practicing it, I was keep telling myself, don't, don't be so shy. Um, you have to come out of yourself. So the flute gives me the courage and the bravery to become somebody else. But without the flute, I don't know how to be other person than me. <laughs> and probably that also shows in my social medias as well. I'm not pretending to be someone, I don't know, someone I don't know. <laughs> you never have, Jasmine, you never have. <laughs> so in, in the green room before uh, an important mm -hmm. recital or an, uh, an important solo, how do you relax? Do you relax? Do you close your eyes? Do you get into the zone? What do you actually do to actually bring you to that point when you're ready to go on? Um, I think until maybe half an hour before the concert or hour before half an hour. depends um, depends on the concert. I am very much the same, very relaxed, and you wouldn't probably, you wouldn't tell I have a concert. I have sometimes a lot of people in the green room, um, often they're friends and people, family, and then either one hour before or half an hour before, I tell everybody, um, I think I need to concentrate. And then from then on, yeah, I'm really in the zone, thinking about the piece. Yeah, um, I think my mind is already on stage. <laughs> right, and when you're on stage, you are just present. You've, you're present in your whole body and your whole sense of self. You're just there. There isn't any other thoughts coming through. Um, I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fact that you said probably not answers the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought about it. What do I think on stage? Um, I don't know, <laughs> just about the piece, I guess. We, we all see the Jasmine Choi on stage and we all marvel at what you can do and how you make it seem so effortless. <laughs> um, but you also give us an idea of what the real Jasmine Choi is behind the scenes by your social media. Mm -hmm. For example, we all know you love cooking. <laughs> well, I love food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you've touched on the importance of yoga in your life. So let's talk food. food. Okay. You don't seem to, apart from when you're in Korea, cook much Korean food. Oh, not at all, actually. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I left the country uh, such a long time ago. And also my mom was not into cooking Korean food. Um not the traditional Korean food. She was always into fusion oh. things. And um, yeah, so even when I left for the States, I was not having homesick for Korean food. And of course, time to time I miss it. But yeah, I, I don't cook Korean food. <laughs> But, no, but you show you show us when you do cook that you're actually very good at it. But also, you also show this these beautiful meals that you eat when you're entertained post concert. <laughs> Last trip to Korea, it was like a veritable banquet. Oh, I remember that post. I think it was a sushi place. Yeah, and the organizer invited all of the musicians, and oh, that was a yeah big table full of food. <laughs> 
That was a very special one. <laughs> yeah. And yesterday you posted this wonderful short video on Instagram of yourself doing yoga. And it, it was sort of quite complicated. The lines were perfect. <laughs> yoga is obviously important in your life when you're able to do it. Yeah, I love doing yoga when I'm doing it. I should do more often. But yoga really helps, helps me calm down uh, with not only with my body, but also my mind. And I can focus more. And you feel much happier after doing yoga. And I'm not an expert in yoga. And I'm just a beginner, I would say. I just started doing it because of the guitarist that I often play with, um, Benjamin Byers. He's also a yoga teacher by profession. Wow. So he showed me uh, for the first time a few moves and he told me, oh, you're already flexible. So I got very encouraged by him. <laughs> 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 yeah, but yoga is the answer for life for everybody. Every Everyone should do it. <laughs> it gives you peace. It gives you space. And mm -hmm. if you're doing it properly, it blocks out those thoughts that are coming into your head, doesn't it? They, well, they totally. come in and they just go. It makes you more positive and yes. I would say it gives me more courage somehow that, oh, whatever happens, it will be all okay. Do you feel, as though, you need, of, do you feel as though you need courage? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think I, sh I cannot say for now because at the moment it's not so much necessary, but I have gone through a few periods that I really needed courage, mm -hmm. that I needed to trust myself and that everything will be okay. And one of the very hardest time was when I was at Curtis, I think at Curtis Institute at third year, uh, I couldn't play the flute for months and nobody found out why because um, I went to see more than 10 different doctors and nobody could find out why I cannot play the flute, why my right hand doesn't work, why I cannot pick up a piece of pencil even with my right hand and a lot of them, most of them suggested me that I should think of something else other than playing the flute. But um, I didn't know any other life that I wanted to go forth. And I was telling myself, maybe all of these doctors were wrong. I had to, uh, I, I had to play the flute, I, I, it'll come back. Um, and that kind of courage when everyone gave up uh, and didn't believe me that I could come back to the flute and so on. Um, of course, back then I didn't know yoga <laughs> <laughs> would have helped uh, tremendously. <laughs> so, so the word yeah. courage, you see, that, that applies to every single person listening to this podcast, is mm -hmm. that we all have times in our lives where something's not going right, there is a mm -hmm. there's a problem, we doubt ourselves, but it's, mm -hmm. it's having the courage to trust in yourself, what your heart is telling you, not necessarily I, what others are telling you. Mm -hmm, exactly. Let's see. Um, 
in the end, everything will be totally okay. And for me, after this experience, I, I think still to this day, this was the hardest time <laughs> I've ever experienced because there was this threat that I might not be playing the flute again, that kind of a threat and fear. But after that, whatever happened or will happen, I always tell myself that, well, I can still play the flute, so it's okay, whatever it happens. So I think you learn by experience. And because of that, I am so thankful for whatever happened in my life because it becomes a part of me and all these emotions that you went through all the hard times you can you can express it later with your music and if you didn't experience it you don't have this emotion in you and whatever you don't have you cannot express <laughs> so I'm rather thankful um, with all that. So uh, I would say always be positive. Always think to the better way, good good way to interpret <laughs> whatever it happens. That is so true. And I remember one of my early flute teachers, a wonderful James Dower, who's sadly died, mm. died very young. He mm. once asked me if I'd been in love. And I went, no, not really. And he said, well, <laughs> how are you expected to play this piece and exactly he, and he and i love the fact that you just said that all the high points low points of your life you can draw on now i know it's experiential and it's all comes from your what's happened to you but the same mm -hmm. thing is happening in various different ways to other flute players and musicians around the world and the positive side as you said is to know that one day it will all pass and you mm -hmm. can use the experience that you've had with a really low point or a high point as fuel for your music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Even this period with this crazy Corona time, um, a lot of them I've seen, they're complaining, missing the old days, quote unquote. Um, but then if you think more positively, I'm sure none of us had so much time at home and you can probably use the time that you can um, try things that you always wanted to try <laughs> and things like that <laughs> being yeah. positive absolutely and on that note jasmine i what mm -hmm. i'd like to do is say thank you from everybody here at talking flutes for your time well, thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, no, it's my delight. And um, as, as you like coffee, I you know I like coffee as well. <laughs> one day, one NFA will, will grab in between one of your quick performances a quick coffee. Yeah, it would be wonderful. I would love to come to London again. Oh, well, if you are, just let me know. Coffee, <laughs> coffee and cake or afternoon tea, my lady. We have, af we have afternoon Let's tea here. Yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> So wonderful Great. to speak to you, Jasmine, and well, thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thank you, John Paul. It's my pleasure. So thanks once again to Jasmine and to you all for listening in to this Talking Flutes Coronavirus Lockdown Survival Podcast. Wherever you are, 
please try to keep smiling through these strange times. Keep practicing and know that one day these dark COVID clouds will lift and the sun will once more shine through on us all. Take care and stay healthy. Goodbye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.